Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor. I hope you're well and are enjoying this series so far. Last year, I had the great pleasure of being introduced to Samuel Tolley, a history teacher and the founder of Hidden Pages, a zine discovering hidden melanated history and lists of sources exploring the black experience. After meeting, we recorded a black history feature, which put the spotlight on some incredible historical figures, which don't always get the deserved recognition in mainstream history. We agreed that black history can't just be a focus for one month a year, so we agreed to collaborate more often in 2023 and beyond. And with that in mind, I am delighted to welcome Samuel back on the podcast for him to share some more stories of some of the leading black women in history. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this upcoming episode with Samuel Tolley. It's in the darkest of times that the brightest lights of hope can shine. Baroness Doreen Lawrence is one such example of a ray of light that has compelled society to expose and dispel the dark cloud of racism. The murder of black British teenager Stephen Lawrence on April 22nd, 1993 by a racist gang of white youths and the subsequent revelations of a botched investigation by an institutionally racist metropolitan police service are ingrained in a British public consciousness. The Lawrence family have experienced significant challenges, but their outspoken campaign for justice and reform has resulted in a significant change in policing and the criminal justice system here in Britain. Over several decades, Baroness Lawrence led a campaign to obtain justice for her eldest son, Stephen. Doreen Lawrence was born Doreen Delcita Graham in 1952 and raised in Jamaica until the age of nine, emigrated to England and then settled in southeast London. Doreen Lawrence and her husband Neville had three children, Stephen, Stuart and Georgina. At the time of Stephen's murder, Doreen worked as a special educational needs teacher and Stephen was a gifted track athlete who ran for a local athletics club and aspired to be an architect. The police investigation into Stephen's murder was flawed from the start, with leads not being followed correctly and arrests not being made until a fortnight later. Surprisingly, towards the beginning of the investigation, Detective Superintendent Brian Whedon announced that he had no idea arrests could be made on the basis of reasonable suspicion a basic principle of criminal law. The Crown Prosecution Service, CPS, concluded that there was insufficient evidence to convict any of the five suspects identified by police, and the two who had been charged with murder after being chosen from a lineup had their charges dropped. Nonetheless, Doreen and Neville Lawrence were relentless in their pursuit of justice for Stephen, and the following year, they launched a private prosecution against the five men. This proved unsuccessful as the CPS dropped the charges against two people citing a lack of evidence, and the other three people were acquitted. The Lawrences, on the other hand, did not stop lobbying the Met to face consequences for their failure to follow protocol and conducting their investigation in an unprofessional manner. An inquest into the death of Stephen Lawrence was conducted in 1997, and although the five suspects declined to answer questions, the coroner's jury returned a verdict of unlawful murder and a wholly unprovoked racist assault by five young white men a judgment that went beyond the boundaries of their instruction. Doreen Lawrence condemned the Met and its racism and called parts of the investigation a circus. Later that year, Home Secretary Jack Straw ordered a public inquiry into the Met's handling of the case. Led by Sir William Macpherson, it became known as the Macpherson Report and changed the face of modern policing. The Macpherson Report, published in 1999, made 70 reform recommendations for both policing and the criminal justice system, 
In addition to finding the Met to be institutionally racist, the report proposed repealing the double jeopardy rule, which stated that a person could not be tried for the same offence more than once, and criminalising racist statements even if made in private. Doreen Lawrence maintained incredible resolve throughout all of this, never ceasing to raise her voice in support of Stephen and other victims of racist crime. In fact, she founded the Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust in 1998 to assist young people in their schools and communities in overcoming disadvantage and discrimination. The trust also promotes greater inclusion and diversity in business, especially in management, and campaigns for fairness and social justice, ensuring that the lessons learned in the aftermath of Stephen Lawrence's murder are remembered and implemented. Doreen Lawrence was awarded the OBE for Services to Community Relations in 2003 in acknowledgement of her outstanding work and commitment to improving the lives of young people from disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds and for addressing systemic discrimination. Nonetheless, Lawrence's journey towards justice for Stephen was a relentless one. In 2006, a cold case review of Stephen Lawrence's murder was initiated, which included a thorough re-examination of forensic evidence. Stephen's hairs, a microscopic stain of blood and fibres from his clothing were discovered on the clothing of two of the suspects and this evidence was used to secure a murder conviction against them in 2012, with one of the men's previous acquittal being overturned. They were sentenced to life in prison. However, Stephen was attacked by more than two men that night in April 1993, and Doreen Lawrence had stated that while the prosecution of Gary Dobson and David Norris gives her some peace, the others, Neil and Jamie Accord and Luke Knight, remaining free and with impunity, means she does not feel she can rest until they are all brought to justice. Stephen Lawrence's case resurfaced in 2013 after a whistleblowing former undercover police officer revealed that he had been strongly encouraged by senior Met officers to surveil and defame the Lawrence family in order to discredit their campaign. In response to these revelations, Doreen Lawrence stated, out of all the things I've found out over the years, this certainly has topped it. Nothing can justify the whole thing about trying to discredit the family and people around us. Stories of spy cops appeared in the media, with reports of a large number of individuals who had encountered undercover police officers gathering intelligence on them and their affiliated groups, with some even deceived into long-term relationships with said officers or their aliases. Consequently, Doreen Lawrence was a key participant in a public inquiry into undercover police activity. Doreen Lawrence was one of the only few people to hold the Olympic flag during the Games' opening ceremony in 2012, and she also received the Lifetime Achievement Award at the 14th Annual Pride of Britain Awards last year. Lawrence was elevated to the peerage the following year, becoming Baroness Lawrence of Clarendon. Clarendon is a parish in Jamaica, and Lawrence's honour is unusual in that it is named after a Commonwealth location other than the United Kingdom. Lawrence, in addition to her own charitable trust, is a patron of Stop Hate UK and a board and council member of the human rights organisation Liberty. The Montfort University in Leicester established the Stephen Lawrence Research Centre to conduct research on the history and culture of UK-BAME communities, institutional racism and the social psychology of racial violence. Dora Lawrence was also appointed Chancellor of the University in 2016. Several universities have bestowed honorary doctorates on her as well. Despite the decades of ordeals that Baroness Dora Lawrence and her family has gone through, she has consistently and courageously fought for justice for Stephen and fought for racial equality in every aspect of society. In the words of Lord Simon Woolley, founder of Operation Black Vote, for many of us, she is black royalty. Over the last 20 years, Doreen has single-handedly become the racial conscience 
of our society. From her own extreme pain, Doreen has sought not just to challenge the police and the political and democratic system, she also sought to challenge who we are as a nation with the unspoken mantra that we're better than this. Mary Seacole was a courageous explorer of the 19th century. She was a well-known nurse of mixed ethnicity and Jamaican origin. In recognition of her efforts to aid wounded soldiers during the Crimean War, she received the Order of Merit from the Jamaican government post-Hammersley. In the UK, she was honoured by many as Mother Seacole. Before she was married, she was known as Mary Jane Grant and hid her exact birth date, but it is known that she was born in Kingston, Jamaica sometime around 1805. Seagull's father was a Scottish soldier stationed in Jamaica. Jamaica was a British colony at the time. Seagull called her Creole mother an admirable doctress, meaning a user of traditional herbal remedies. Seagull and her mother ran a boarding house for officers in Kingston and looked after lodgers who were ill. She recalled learning much from her mother, as well as doctors staying at their boarding house. Mary also had a highly developed sense of wanderlust. As I grew into womanhood, I began to indulge that longing which will never leave me while I have health and vigour, she once wrote. I was never wary of tracing upon an old map the route to England, and never followed with my gaze the stately ships homeward bound without longing to be in them, and see the blue hills of Jamaica fade into the distance. She visited England twice as a teenager, staying there for three years in total, before travelling to the Bahamas, Haiti and Cuba to buy products to resell in Kingston. She married Edwin Seacole in 1836, a man Mary refers to in her testament as the godson of Admiral Lord Nelson. Throughout their brief union, Edwin struggled with his health, and he passed away in 1844, the same year as Seacole's mother. Seacole never remarried. Instead, she concentrated her efforts on travelling and nursing instead. In Kingston, where there was a cholera epidemic in 1850, she cared for the victims where she gained invaluable experience and knowledge of how to cure the disease. Soon after, Seagull travelled to Cruces, Panama. She ran her own store across the street from her brother, who ran a motel there. Prospectors travelling to California's goldfields were catered to by Mary and her brother. Whilst in Panama, she also witnessed a significant cholera outbreak in June 1852 during which she herself experienced a brief period of illness. In Panama, Seacole provided cholera treatment to numerous patients with traditional herb remedies she had learned from her mother as a child. These treatments varied from placing warm poultices on wounds to administering mercury chloride. Though these remedies might have been popular among doctors at the time, they are now recognised to have been harmful. Seacole was open about her unconventional and potentially dangerous treatment choices in patient care and the fact that some of the treatment she later utilised made her shudder. In 1853, Seacole returned to Kingston, where she read an article in a London newspaper that changed her life. The Times reported that Russia had invaded Crimea, a large peninsula on the Black Sea's northern coast. The Ottoman Empire ruled over the Crimea at the time, now known as Turkey, and thus the Ottoman Empire, Turkey, declared war on Russia. European and Asian powers saw the Crimea as a strategically important piece of land. Whoever controlled the Crimean Peninsula controlled the overland routes to India. In March 1854, Britain and France declared war on Russia in support of the Ottoman Empire. Of course, casualties are a natural consequence of wars. So, 
Whilst in London in the autumn of 1854, her instinct to nurse the poorly outweighed her speculative business venture in gold investments. Mary visited various government offices to apply for jobs to help out in the war effort, but was frequently turned down. Seacole's race could have played a role in her inability to secure a nursing position in Crimea, but this is not certain. There were also other factors stacked against her, including the fact that she never formally applied, had no hospital experience, and was past the normal age for nursing. In any case, Seacole was hurt by the rejection. She once wrote, The disappointment seemed a cruel one. I was so conscious of the unselfishness of the motives which induced me to leave England, so certain of the service I would render among the sick soldiery. And yet, I find it so difficult to convince others of these facts. Doubts and suspicions arose in my heart. Was it possible that American prejudices against colour had some root here? Did these ladies shrink from accepting my aid because my blood flowed beneath a somewhat duskier skin than theirs? After her nursing plans fell through, Seacole decided to start her own business. Thomas Day, a relative of her husband's, was her business partner, whom she had met in Panama and ran into again in London. She arrived in Turkey in March 1855, several months after the major battles. When she had made it to the Crimea with Thomas Day, Seacole established her British hotel in Spring Hill, between Sevastopol and Balaclava. The town of Spring Hill is now in Ukraine. The British hotel was not a hotel in the traditional sense of the term. While Seacole's original intention was not to open a mess table and comfortable quarters for sick and convalescent officers, she once wrote, she instead established a hut that served as an all-in-one store restaurant for officers as well as a canteen for regular soldiers. After the fighting was over, Mary returned to the battlefield to help the wounded and on occasion comfort the dying. Seacole's work as a nurse was almost as well known as Florence Nightingale's and both women were dubbed the mother of the army by the press. The lady with the lamp was Florence Nightingale and the creole with the tea mug was Mary Seacole. Following the fall of Sevastopol, Seacole's business thrived. There were no more battles during this time but the peace treaty was still being negotiated. Pleasure was hunted keenly, she writes and it could be found at the cricket matches, picnics, dinner, parties, races, theatricals. My restaurant was always full. Everything from soup to fish, curry to custard, pastries to poultry was available in Seacole's kitchen. Mary Seacole on Thomas Day brought in costly supplies, expecting the talks to last longer than they did. The troops began to leave as soon as the peace treaty was signed on March 30th, 1856. Seacole and her business partner were unable to sell their supplies, and as the business failed, Seacole herself would rather destroy cases of red wine than allow it to fall into Russian hands. After the war, Seacole salvaged what she could from her business and opened up a shop in Aldershot, back in England, near an army base. However, it also failed. Friends in London remembered Seacole's generosity during the Crimean War and organised a benefit to help pay her debts. It was insufficient. As a result, Seacole wrote her most famous book, The Wonderful Adventures of Mrs. Seacole in Many Lands, in order to raise funds. It was one of the first travel memoirs written by a black woman. The book was a success because it was written for a popular audience hungry for tales of the Crimean War, and thus it was quickly put through a second printing. A second Seacole fund was established with the assistance of Queen Victoria, the future King Edward VII, and his brother, the Duke of Edinburgh. And it was this second Seacole fund that guaranteed her a comfortable living for the rest of her life. On May 14th, 1881, Seacole died of a stroke. 
She was 76 years old at the time. She was a wealthy woman at the time of her death and she left much of her fortune to her sister in Jamaica. Seacole considered herself a British citizen because Jamaica was part of the British Empire during her lifetime. Nonetheless, the Jamaican people to this day keep Seacole's memory alive. The Jamaican General Trained Nurses Association, now known as the Jamaican Nurses Association, named their headquarters the Mary Seacole House in 1954 to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Crimean War. The group also restored her gravestone in St Mary's Roman Catholic Cemetery in Kensal Green, London, in the early 1970s. Jamaica bestowed the Order of Merit on Seacole in 1990, the country's third highest honour, and Kingston General Hospital, also in Jamaica, has honoured her memory by naming a ward after her. In 2004, an internet vote took place in response to the absence of black people in the top 100 of BBC's Greatest Britain poll. In this subsequent and poignant survey, more than 10,000 people voted Mary Seacole the greatest black Britain. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I always love catching up with Samuel and always learn so much from my conversations with him. If you haven't already, please make sure you check out Hidden Pages and follow along for even more inspiring stories. We've left links in the show notes. That's all from us today, but I really hope I'll see you again this Wednesday for another dose of pocket-sized career mentorship. See you then.